So uh, what can you tell us about um, Harold Poole uh, growing up, the early years of Harold Poole? Well, let me back up and kind of give you the tableau that this whole thing is painted on. Um, early on in the case, uh, after I met Harold Poole and after I got involved with the lawyers, it became abundant, abundantly clear to me that I was involved in something that was a lot bigger than I, Jim Parkinson, am ever going to be about. I mean, we had a, a world war. We had a war hero. We had some of the best lawyers in America, including some of the biggest firms in Washington, D.C., Greenberg, Trarick, and Patton Boggs. I mean, both of those firms were involved in the uh, re-election fiasco in Florida and the legal battles. So I was with some of the top people in the country. So what I did is I early on got a hold of Lee Benson, who's one of my closest friends. And I said, Lee, I said, let me tell you a little bit about this case. I said, no matter how it turns out, win, lose, or draw, uh, it's going to make a fascinating story. And it's a story that needs to be told. There's a lot of this history that nobody knows. So I got Lee involved early on to write the book with me. So he would go to the hearings with me. Uh, he would, uh, I would call him right after an event and he would write it down and I would keep a diary and, and then he would interview Harold Poole and I would. So we both were on this story from the very beginning. Sounds like a bit of an investment on your behalf. Well, what I did candidly is I knew that Harold Poole's story was uh, valuable. I didn't know how it was going to turn out, but I knew it'd be good for me to do it. So I basically uh, agreed to take care of all the costs up front, including uh, getting the writer. And uh, and I told him at the end, as soon as I got my expenses back, the three of us would uh, participate in the profits of the book. And I told Harold I, I didn't want to make anything more than he made. So obviously that was a good deal for everybody. And so we started the adventure early on. I learned about Harold, uh, you know, line by line, I guess you could say, as I talked to him. And, you know, he grew up in Salt Lake City. Uh, he had all sisters but Harold and good, devout Latter-day Saint. It's kind of interesting that on the morning he was shooting down the first Japanese plane to be shot down, uh, the battle over Manila, both of his parents were comfortably ensconced in chairs in the tabernacle, both singing in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir that morning when their son was in harm's way. Hmm. But he didn't go on a mission. Uh, he was a hunter and a fisherman, loved the outdoors. Guns were nothing new to him. His mother said, my son will never own a gun. Well, that was true until he was 16. <laughs> and then he become, became an avid hunter. And he was just a good kid, uh, had wonderful friends. And he knew the war was coming, so he thought it'd be a good idea if he enlisted and he did. Was he a college type? or No. Um, uh, he just knew that he um, needed to, to join the Army Air Corps back in those days. He was a mechanic. And he was um, uh, sent to the Philippines. And the first uh, six months he was there, it was just paradise. I mean, you know, he had people. It, money it was no problem. And he could have a houseboy and help him with different things. He could go and hike and fish and do anything he wanted to do until December the 8th. And then his whole world changed. He's a remarkable man. You know, when I first started talking to Harold, uh, one of the things that struck me was his humility. He just, there's, there's certain people that give off an energy. You know, if you're around somebody that's a, a type A personality, pretty soon where you're shaking your feet up and down and you're buzzing around like a, a bee in a bottle. When you're around a person like Harold, who has a, an inner peace, 
it affects you just the same. You know, he, originally he wanted to be a photographer, and then he found out that a mailman had more free time. <laughs> so that's what he did. I stopped by his house the other day because he wanted me to sign some books for his son. And I took my son and two, my two granddaughters, and they went out in the backyard, and Harold has a little um, uh, dollhouse. It's uh, big enough for little girls to get in with the furniture and everything. He has made 17 of those in his life for his neighbors and his children and grandchildren. Mm. That kind of guy. Very good with his hands. Likes uh, taxidermy and all that kind of thing. Mm. Okay. So um, he signs up. He he volunteers for the Army. Is that right? Yes. Did that early on. About I think it's about six months or so before the war. Okay. And um, what branch, what position? The Army Air Corps, which was uh, the... Um, the entity that uh, took care of the planes, and he was a mechanic. Very proud of the fact that he became a, a mechanic early on, passed all the exams, and so he knew guns intimately. I mean, he worked on them, and uh, he knew airplanes, and so that's kind of where he uh, uh, gravitated towards. Uh, he wasn't someone who was going to end up being a, an officer candidate. He was somebody that learned to uh, take what they would give and give what they would take. That was kind of his mantra, and what got him through. Do you have a sense for the role of religion in his early years prior to the military? Well, interestingly enough, um, he came from a very religious home. Uh, Parents were devout, and Mormons going way back. I didn't get the sense that he was uh, the kind of young man that that all of us got upset at as we were going through the priest quorum, you know, the guy that was always doing the right thing. I think think Harold... uh, it's most revealing when he says he never read the Book of Mormon all the way through before the war. Kind of mm-hmm. tells you where he was. Sure, but he always believed, uh, believed in prayer. Um, he actually found a Bible uh, during his captivity. Uh, interesting. I tell the whole story in the book, but to give you a little synopsis, um, the Japanese never took it from him, and didn't give it back. They always give it back. And reading the scriptures made a tremendous difference in his uh, ability to get through captivity. And then he said, um, uh, he'd read it over and over and over again. He said, you know, I was getting a little tired of the Bible, if you can believe it. He said, so one night he said, I got down on my knees and I prayed to my heavenly father that somehow I could, you know, get my hands on the Book of Mormon. And he told me that, you know, the next day, this was in Japan, he went out to the big mess hall and there were a lot of men there he didn't really recognize a new group and one man in particular caught his attention he started a conversation with him and turned out he was a return missionary Hmm. and he had a copy of the Book of Mormon which he shared with Harold Poole now I was talking to Lee Benson the co-author the other day he received a telephone call in his office a couple weeks ago and um, that man who shared the Book of Mormon with Harold Poole is still alive hmm. and called him up and said, oh, I heard about the story, and yes, I am the man that did that. Hmm. Wow. It had a tremendous impact on Harold. So it sounds like religion was important to him in a very practical way. Very practical way. But, you know, it was very important to many of the men. I mean, Lester Tenney, one of my favorite clients, uh, Jewish. Um, sad part of his story when... He was captured. His wife thought he had been killed. So during the war, she remarried. He came home and his wife had remarried. And what helped him was the Jewish prayer book. And, you know, Manny Ennery, a Catholic, uh, 
had a remarkable experience in the hold of a ship as they were being transported to Japan for slave labor. I mean, they were in a very small hold of the ship. Uh, They were um, without adequate food or water. I mean, it really got so bad that they would, uh, some of them would slit their wrists just to suck their own blood to hydrate themselves. Mm. They'd defecate in place and urinate. And what happened was a riot broke out. And so Manny Inneries personally told me this story. He climbed up the ladder going to the um, to the deck, and he got as far as he could go before the Japanese soldier would bayonet him. And he saw this scene of uh, mayhem and panic and chaos, and he pulled out his rosary beads, and he began to recite the rosary. And a calm came over the men, and it stopped. Mm-hmm. How many lives were saved? You tell me. Mm-hmm. But that's Manny Inneries. And the stories go on and on, depending on your religion. So... If one were to say to me, okay, um, because Manny Inneries did that, the Catholic Church is the only true church, or because Lester Tenney did what he did, Judaism is the only way, or Harold Poole, I'd just say, well, I can't answer that question for you, but I can just tell you what happened, and you arrive at your own conclusion. So when we talk about the greatest generation, faith is a clear, uh, significant component. I think it is with a lot of men. And the other thing that kind of caught my ear as I was listening to these stories was the significance of mothers. You know, one of the things I I would ask myself as I would interview the men, what made the difference? I mean, why did some men endure the Bataan Death March and all this and make it through, and other men just would sit down and literally give up and die? Was it a West Point education? Not necessarily. Was it an education at all? Not necessarily. You really can't pinpoint it except to say that Many of them, well, some of them were so angry at what they were watching, they just swore they would get back at these Japanese and they would even the score. So hatred, you know, actually fueled their ability to survive. And others, it was uh, a desire to get home uh, or, or a abiding faith. So it's different with every different man. But mothers also were an important Oh, component. yeah. You know, you'll hear stories and you'll read this from Stephen Ambrose and others uh, Stephen Ambrose, the great historian that passed away recently, that when men would be on a battlefield close to death, they would call for their mothers. It's kind of a haunting thought. So I'm kind of putting in the spot here, but what can you tell us about the Pacific Theater during World War II, right around the time this invasion was about to happen? Try if you can. I want to do some chronology here throughout the next 20, 30 minutes or so. Let's just start with the the Pacific Theater and the environment in the war that that was that led up to the attack on the Philippines. Well, you know, uh, that would take more time than we really have, and it's really a whole college class. But let me see if I can summarize a couple of the key points. It was no surprise to anybody that understood geopolitics that Japan was on the march early on in the 30s. All you had to do was go into China. I mean, they marched into China. You There's a very good book, The Rape of Nanking by Iris Chang, where she chronicles what happened in China. The, the Japanese uh, kind of looked at us and kind of with a surprised eye and said, well, why are you upset? I mean, we're going after territory. We're going after natural resources. I mean, you did the same thing, America. What about Manifest Destiny? What about going to the West? I mean, you bought the Louisiana Purchase, but you didn't buy everything. <laughs> and what you did to Mexico in the uh, 1846, you know, that was not a war that should have happened. Well, what about the war with Spain? 
So I think an argument could be made from their perspective that, hey, this is our right. We're doing the same thing you did, but it was a little bit barbaric and somewhat disingenuous. But that was, I think, their pretext. Mm -hmm. They needed natural resources. They needed more land. And they had um, uh, a history of leadership based on deity. I mean, it's not like, you you know, we elected um, Roosevelt. Well, they elected Hirohito. That's not how it went. (laughs) But they believed in this Code of Bushido, which is this Code of Honor and all that, which is remarkable because what they did to our men was the most dishonorable thing imaginable. One of the really interesting aspects of doing this book was the history. I just love history. Uh, William Manchester is one of my favorite authors. He wrote a a great autobiography on uh, General Douglas MacArthur. I read it, and I just, you know, the thought J- D- Douglas MacArthur was great, and I thought Truman was a fool for relieving him of his command until I really got into the history. MacArthur was sent to the Philippines and was given the charge to prepare the Philippine Islands for an invasion by Japan years before it happened. And it's not like he wasn't given good support. He was given Dwight Eisenhower to help him do it. Well, he didn't prepare. I mean, if anybody should have been relieved of command, I mean, if you if we relieved the men at Pearl Harbor, both Army and Navy, for what happened there with that sneak attack, well, MacArthur should have been taken out and, and whipped. Mm-hmm. I mean, he should have been discharged. Now, I'm not saying he didn't do great things at other times in his command, but what he did there, do you realize that we did the research, um, and, and quite frankly, Manchester tells this in his book, American Caesar. MacArthur got word that, Honolulu had been attacked, Pearl Harbor had been attacked, and sat in his room and called for his Bible, wanted to read the Bible, and did nothing. Brereton uh, asked him, he said, don't you think we ought to send our planes to Formosa and bomb those Japanese before they bomb us? And he said, no. Hmm. He was catatonic. And then there's a great explication of that in Manchester's book, because that's not the first time that happened. It happened in Napoleon at Waterloo. You know, it happened to Stonewall Jackson. So these things happen. The best way to describe it would be computer overload, but but he really handled it inappropriately. And I, I lost a lot of respect for MacArthur. Sure, sure. Or got a more realistic view, maybe. Well, a realistic view, but he went way down in my estimation. The average American soldier is the one I respect. I mean, you, you've got a scene where Harold Poole is on the banks of uh, the Bay of Manila, and uh, his general gets in a PT boat and leaves. Mm. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt goes on the radio and tells everybody that we're sending, at this moment, reinforcement to the Philippines. It was an out-and-out lie. Because they're retreating. They're, well, not, the only were they, not only were they retreating, but nothing was coming to save these men. Wainwright told the men, told General King, do not surrender. You fight to the end. You do not surrender. Well, General King realized uh, in early April of 42, if we do that, it's going to be the biggest slaughter in the history of the the, uh, Republic. So he surrendered the men. Now, by the way, if you tell a Bataan Death March survivor, uh, or if you frame a question, uh, when did did you surrender? They'll go apoplectic. I did not surrender. Every one of them will say that. I was surrendered by my general. Hmm. I did not quit. Right. And it's a matter of pride with them. So Pearl Harbor happens within the space of nine hours. Harold Poole's in the Philippines. What happens in the Philippines? Well, what happens in the Philippines is after the initial attack, 
the Japanese Imperial Army lands uh, on the Philippine island of Luzon and marches towards Manila. And, you know, the American soldiers were prepared and they weren't prepared. And the Filipinos were prepared and they weren't prepared. And next thing you know, they had to retreat into the peninsula of Bataan, which was their uh, plan all along, but they just uh, didn't do it correctly. It was a poorly devised plan and poorly executed by the generals. And the men get trapped on the Bataan Peninsula and on Corregidor, which is the little island that sits in the Bay of Manila. Nothing can come in, nothing can come out unless it goes by. And, and MacArthur was on Corregidor, which is about two miles out into the bay. And they had the Malinta Tunnel where they could um, uh, avoid any real danger because they couldn't be bombed. Well, the men of Bataan surrendered first. And then the men of Corregidor did it a month later. The Japanese were extraordinarily upset when the men of Bataan surrendered and those on Corregidor didn't. And they just uh, were brutal because of it. Now, keep in mind that there's a different mindset in Japan. I don't know if you know the history of Iwo Jima and how many Japanese surrendered and how many got killed. 23,000 got killed because they had a code of Bushido, which was, you don't surrender. You surrender, you're lower than a dog. We'll take your family name and we'll blot it out back home. You're a non-entity. Don't you come home. We don't want you. You're a coward. And the Americans didn't approach it that way. If you take the German prisoner of war camps for American soldiers, juxtapose the statistics with what happened in the Japanese prison camps, you learn the following. You learn that in Japan, I mean, in, in Germany, 3% of the American soldiers perished as prisoners. In Japan prison camps, 40%. That's hmm. kind of hard to explain that, except there's a different code. They were playing by rules, but they were playing by their rules. They were not signatories of the Geneva Convention, but that didn't make them non-humans. So, um, so there's an invasion, there's a retreat. Where's Harold Poole sitting in all this um, he, as the Japanese are marching in there? He's fighting. He's fighting every day. And what happened as is... As a mechanic? How does a mechanic fight? Well, what he does, he ends up having a, a gun. He ended up shooting down another Japanese airplane with a machine gun. He manned a machine gun. Because as a mechanic, whether you're a mechanic or a barber, when the enemy starts coming across the line, you take out a gun and you start to shoot. And so that's what Harold Poole and everybody else was doing. Mm -hmm. But they, they had their rations cut, then they got cut, and they got cut again. And then they, when they ended up being surrendered, they had that horrific Bataan death march, which we've already talked about. And they end up in these prison camps of Cabana, Tawan, and O'Donnell. Actually, let's let's drill in a bit to the Bataan death march. What What is it about that death march that makes it go down as one of the most horrific events? Can you tell a story or two, lots of detail? What makes it barbaric? What makes it horrific? I don't want to be graphic. I mean, you'll be graphic, but my intent isn't to be graphic. It's to be accurate on uh, well, I, I, why it goes down. Well, I really learned about the Bataan death march in a hotel room in Los Angeles. Uh, we planned to file the case of Johnny Johnson, who's from Salt Lake City, and Harold Poole on December 7th, 1999, for obvious reasons, the press and all that. And we'd arranged a press conference that day. And uh, I went up to Johnny Johnson's room in the Intercontinental Hotel in Los Angeles, and his wife was there. 
And Harold was there. Harold was sitting on the bed. Johnny was sitting on a chair, and I'm in a chair, and his wife's off in a corner. We had two hours to kill. I didn't say a word. And um, out of the silence, Johnny Johnson said to Harold, do you remember when they shot the captain? And I looked over at Johnny, who is a wonderful man, and he had tears just streaming down his cheeks. And I looked at Harold, and he was... um, he had uh, tears in his eyes, but he was in control. And he said, yeah, I remember. And he said, why'd they do that, Harold? They took him and they made him kneel at the bridge and they shot him in the head. And then for two hours, Harold and Johnny relived verbally in the presence of Johnny's wife and me, the Bataan Death March. They started to march in Maravellas, and they went all the way to Camp O'Donnell, 85 miles. They weren't really given enough water. Food was really um, minimal at best. And as they marched down this road, which I have been to, if you're on the outside, these Japanese soldiers would come by either on horseback or they'd be in a jeep or something, and they'd take out a sword and they would just for fun decapitate somebody. They would have American soldiers bury their comrades alive. Mm. They, If someone stumbled and couldn't really walk, the Japanese soldier would come up and put a bayonet right through him. I mean, it was, just, it was just unbelievable. And I heard it firsthand from Johnny Johnson and Harold Poole for two hours nonstop. And I was overwhelmed by the enormity of it. Enormity, of course, means the awfulness of it, not the extent of it. But the extent of it was extraordinary. I mean, one of the questions that struck me was, how do you get a Japanese soldier to be so bereft of any human feeling that it's okay to do that? And it reminded me of um, All Quiet on the Western Front, where the author says the only way to really Get somebody to do that. You've got to dehumanize who's on the other side of the bayonet. Either he's a Jap or a Kraut or a Nip or Gook or something, but he's not John DeLynn with a family with Margie and kids. Because if you say that's a human being, you can't do it. So the, the Bataan Death March, um, I went back to Bataan uh, after the case was over with Harold Poole and Lee Benson and Paul Warner. And we went to all those places. And we stood where it happened. And um, the, the, the irony of some of the moments is overwhelming. When we first got to our hotel, Harold and I got on the elevator, and he didn't notice it, but I did. The elevator was made by Mitsubishi. Had the insignia. The day we were there, the president of the Philippines was in Japan borrowing money. Most of the tourists in the Philippines are Japanese. So it's kind of, you know, you think about these things and you say, hey, how do you sort all this stuff out? And one of the things I uh, I wanted to do with Lee in this book was not only to tell the story of Harold Poole, but I, I, I want everybody to take a second and kind of get in a balloon and go 75 feet over the uh, area and take a look down and say, okay, here's what's going on. How do I really want to participate in the world? What role do I really want to play? Uh, do I really want to just uh, be a cipher and let this stuff go down? Or do I want to 
play a role in, in making this a better place. So um, the Bataan Death March was extraordinary. Um, Elder Oaks gave a talk in conference uh, several uh, sessions back. He was assigned to the Philippines for a couple of years, and he was describing the serenity of the Manila American Cemetery, which is um, uh, built by the Americans and maintained by the Americans. And as he described it, I had to hearken back to when I was there. I went there with Harold Poole. And we have these beautiful, beautiful monuments, headstones, manicured lawns. And then there's this semicircle with these um, marble or granite pieces with the name of every single soldier who died. And as we looked out, I asked Harold a few questions, and he said, well, I'm glad my comrades have gotten a, an appropriate and an honorable um, burial because that's not what happened. Mm. So we buried him out in Cabatatuan and O'Donnell. Mm. And then he looked at some names. There were three pools that were with him, and the, there was, um, well, they gave him nicknames. There was uh, Whirlpool, there was Cesspool, and there was Pocket Pool. And they were friends. And we found their names up on the wall. And Harold says, I'm the only one who lived. Hmm. How many days was the march? Well, it depends on when you joined the march. It was between four and seven days. Okay. And you mentioned this in the previous um, episode, but I just want you to mention it again. Talk to us about the uh, the mortality rates and you know even mortality rates per you know, per unit of uh, distance. Well, let me give you, um, Harold was in the 20th Pursuit Squadron. When the war started, I think there were 225 in it. When the war was over, 50 of them returned. Hmm. Now, when they died, you know, I'm not really sure I know. Well, no, I am sure I don't know. You know, some on the Bataan Death March, some uh, in O'Donnell, some in Cabatatuan, some of the worst prisons in the world. Um and some on the hell ships. You know, one of the things I haven't mentioned is these ships would cross the ocean, the South China Sea, to get from the Philippines to Japan. Under the war, the rules of war, if you're moving prisoners, you're supposed to put uh, a, a white cross on the boat so Americans don't bomb Americans. It's just kind of how things are done. Well, the Japanese didn't do that. So as these ships would cross, they had to, uh, the men would fight disease, panic, dehydration. You know, you can go a while longer without food than you can without water. Without water, you really have a problem. You go three days and you're dead. And uh, and then they'd be bombed by their own men, their own country. I think the highest mortality rate was on those ships, hmm. believe it or not. And those stories, there's been several books written about the hell ships. That's what they were called for obvious reasons. Being claustrophobic myself, that's probably what bothered me the most about it. Mm-hmm. I'll share a little anecdote with you. We were up on the 16th floor at the Intercontinental, and I avoid elevators if I can. I mean, I, I ride them. I'm not uh, completely gone about it, but I, I'm not comfortable in it. Maybe it's because I'm not in control or whatever. But um, uh, we, we hear this story, you know, all of us in the room about the Bataan Death March, and they talked a little bit about the hell ships. And it came time to go down for that press conference. So as we approached the elevator, the thought entered my mind about, well, why don't we take the stairs? Till I remember we were on the 16th floor. 
Then I get in the uh, then I get in this elevator with these two eighty year old men and the Johnny's wife, and I look at them, and it hits me: How in the world could I even entertain the thought of being claustrophobic in an elevator in a modern luxury hotel in downtown Los Angeles with these two war heroes who were in cattle cars, uh, who were on a hell ship? I mean, it was just kind of an ironic moment for me. Puts it in perspective. It really does. I think that's one of the things I, that Lee and I try to do with the book. I mean, it gives some perspective to the to the youth of America. You know, I went to a local high school uh, down in California, and I, I know the principal very well. I represented his wife once, and and I asked to see a copy of the uh, the textbook used for American history for the high school kids. 900-page textbook, a lot of photos and all that. So I looked up in the index... Uh, to find out my issue, the Philippines, Bataan, etc. 900 pages, and there's one paragraph about the Battle of Manila. One. Hmm. Nothing about the Bataan Death March. Nothing about slave labor. And it dawned on me, this story's going to die. You know? And, and Iris Chang said it best. She said, I think I'm paraphrasing, she said, if we don't honor the greatest generation, maybe we don't deserve another one. Yeah. So um, just to drive it, just to sort of drive conclusion to the to the march itself, do you have any stories about maybe how later in some of these veterans' lives, some of the survivors, um, what they experienced on that march continued to haunt them? Well, it's hard to differentiate. Uh, you know, what is it that triggers the nightmares, et cetera? Mo Mazur from Florida, uh, who ended up testifying before the United States Senate with a couple of other clients, died several years ago. I was on a conference call with his widow right after the funeral. She thanked us for what we were doing. And then she said, "Um, the last words uttered by my husband on this earth were, stop beating me, please stop beating me. Took it to his grave. Uh, Al Barest from Indio told me that um, his wife hasn't slept in the same room that he's been in for their entire marriage, because he'd wake up in the middle of the night throwing punches. He'd be back in Bataan, back in the hell ship, back in the uh, the company that he, they worked as a slave laborer for. So she slept in another room. He said one time he actually stood up in his bed asleep and walked right off and thought he's back on the march. Fell off the bed and cut his head, so it's concerned to him. He said, but I solved that problem. He said, when my dog died, I took the leash, tied it to my thigh, tethered it to the bedpost, and so if I moved, it would wake me up. So it had horrible effects. I mean, these guys had dysentery, beriberi, malaria, you name the disease. It stays with you. You, you can't say that, uh, that war is something you can put out of your mind. I mean, uh, you know, you can put a bad dinner from 1972 out of your mind, you know, you can put an argument with your wife from three years ago out of your mind. She won't, but you will. <laughs> but you don't take a war experience and say it didn't happen. And, and, and But Harold, of, of all my clients and Lester, Tenney, and others, they seem to just go on with their life and become very productive citizens. I mean, it's, it's remarkable what they did after all this happened. But to say that, um, that this is something, oh, just forget about it and go on and live your life, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're not talking about an insignificant episode in the world history. We're talking about a marker in world history. 
before Batan, after Batan. You know, I was in New York City a couple of weeks ago at the Security Council meeting of the United Nations. A friend of mine, Hassan Jallo, is the prosecutor for the genocide case for what happened in Rwanda in 1994, where a million people were killed in 100 days. He's prosecuting the case in the United Nations or for the United Nations in Arusha, Tanzania. I've been there, and I've seen uh, part of the trial, and I was there to hear his report. Well, wait a minute. It happened again in 1994? What Pol Pot do in Cambodia? What happened in Croatia? I mean, when are we going to learn? Well, it's my position that we're going to learn as soon as we listen. I mean, if you hear the story and it's properly told either through a podcast or through a book or through a movie, and it really penetrates you that this is wrong, well, then maybe it'll stop. But it's not going to stop just because nobody talks about it. Hmm. Certainly. Tell me, um, either on the march itself or in the camps, did, did Harold have any coping mechanisms, techniques, you know, were there any economies involved? You know, tell us a little bit about how he survived. How did he do it? Interestingly enough, that's a question that uh, both Lee and I probed with Harold. First of all, he had his own mantra, which I think is a pretty interesting way to live. He said, I gave what they took, and I took what they gave. In other words, he wasn't, uh, you know, fighting a fight that he couldn't win. I mean, if they said bow, he bowed. If they said, you know, you had to do exercises before you went to work in the morning, you did it. If they said you're going to have a, uh, a a rice ball with an insect in it, well, that's just the way it's going to be. So he developed an ability to kind of ride easy in the saddle, as cowboys say. And he didn't, you know, spend all of his time in this uh, angry stupor about why me or why did I... And also he had a tremendous faith. He just knew that his parents were praying for him and that uh, that he was praying. And he just had a, an overpowering sense that he was going to be okay. And I think other men had that same sense. Uh, now, where does that come from? You know, I've been struggling with that ever since I met Harold because, number one, I'd like to inculcate myself with that kind of thing, and I'd like to inoculate my children with it so as they face problems in the future, they'll be able to do it as honorable people. Now, everything doesn't go your way. You don't always get to control where things are going to go, but you can control how you're going to react to it. And I think that's one of the lessons that came through to me um, by way of Harold Poole and my other clients. But I think that's how he did it. He just realized that, you know, if you want to not bow, you're going to get your head chopped off. I mean, there's pretty instant reaction to stupidity. Yet even so, were there soldiers who, who weren't that wise? Oh, yeah. And and some of them got away with it. You know, they would do things to the machinery and make sure it didn't work, and they would fight a little bit. But what, if a prisoner tried to escape on Bataan or out of O'Donnell or Kabatatuan, they were in groups of 10. The Japanese would take out the other nine and execute them. Mm. So if you thought you were going to be a hero and you were going to leave, you're going to jeopardize the other nine men that stayed behind. A pretty effective way of keeping control. Mm. Wow. So um, 
maybe this will lead to uh, a bit about the the forced labor. But why why didn't the Japanese uh, military just execute them all and, and leave them there? Well, the Japanese military could have done that, but they didn't. Why I don't know. General Homa chose not to do that. One of the problems that was uh, created uh, during the war is you had such a horrible attrition of men. And so you'd go back to Japan and you didn't have enough people to run these Mitsubishi, Nippon Steel, Kawasaki at all. So they needed the slave labor. Now, this is nothing new in the history of warfare. I mean, this has been going on since time immemorial. I mean, you could go back and take a look at what, the, what they did in, in, in Sparta, in Rome, and, and even in Germany, Albert Speer, who was the architect of the Third Reich, became the minister of armaments. And his great crime that he was convicted of at Nuremberg was using slave labor. Hmm. So nothing new, because as the men were killed, you had to have somebody go and work. And so slave labor fit that niche. So that might have been a motivation for keeping them alive? Well, you know, I think it was in part. I, Keeping them alive, killing them. I mean, if you got right down to the foot soldier, they probably said they didn't care one way or the other. But I think there probably was an overall feeling that this was a good way to use manpower. And surprisingly enough, the corporations ask for the slaves in Japan. I mean, there are documents that show that. Mm -hmm. So so at some point, um, the the march ends. They're put on these uh, hell ships, and Harold goes... uh, to mainland Japan. Tell us about what he experienced there. Well, he gets to mainline, uh, gets to the, uh, uh, to Honshu in Japan, and you've got a remarkable shift. You go from the Philippines where it's too hot to Japan where it's too cold. Mm. And, but you've got the same rations, the same amount of food, etc. And instead of working outside, he was now going to work in Nippon steel with the furnaces and all that. So he he trades one thing for another. He actually volunteered to go. He thought he'd have better rations and whatnot if he went to Japan. Didn't turn out that way. And they would they would march him from the military uh, prisons to the uh, gates of the corporations, turn him over to the corporations, and they had their own guards. Now, one of the things that is misunderstood is that they didn't work on armaments for the Japanese military. 100% of the time. They were actually used for domestic products. Right. Got to keep the domestic economy going. Because that became a very central issue in the legal case because of the peace treaty signed in 1951. It gets a little complicated, but that's one of the issues. Okay. And so Harold was assigned where? Nippon Steel and Honshu. Now, some of my clients had the interesting experience of actually seeing the mushroom cloud from the uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima atomic bombs oh my goodness yeah and also you know you talk about how horrific those experiences were what was really bad on japan were the uh bombs that led to the fires sure and that killed far more people yeah than the other and the camps where the men were were not marked and so they had to worry about starving getting beaten by the japanese guards and also getting bombed by the americans firebombed absolutely so tell us some of the uh, positions or jobs that some of these soldiers would have in the various types of plants or facilities. Well, let me tell you about Frank Bigelow. Frank Bigelow uh, worked for Mitsui in the mines. And they would take him down the mines, which had been closed because they were too dangerous. So they sent the Americans down there. Mm. 
Now, what makes Frank Bigelow's story kind of interesting, he testified before the U.S. Senate, and he described how there was an accident in the mine. He badly injured his leg, and so they had to amputate it. Well, they didn't use an anesthetic. So he's lying there as they're going to amputate his leg, and he screams out to his best friend, hit me, just hit me, knock me out. I can't take the pain. And I heard Frank Bigelow tell the story, and he said, um, my friend looked at me, and he said, Biggie, I can't hit you. I love you. I just can't do it. And so they amputated his leg. Well, Frank went on to um, to be a cab driver and a construction worker and one of the most delightful men um, lived down in Florida. Well, we had four of our clients testify before the U.S. Senate. Two of them are dead, Mo Mazur and Frank Bigelow. I remember when I got the news that he had passed away, I just... I just uh, felt that a a great American had passed. You know, there's a memorial in Washington, D.C. for World War II. First time I went to it was during the um, pendency of the case. And um, the day I was there, I photographed the inscription by um, Truman about we can never forget what happened, we can never pay the debt. Because I thought it was so ironic after the Congress denied these men that that would be there. And then I look behind me because I heard some laughter, and I see a group of Japanese kids about, oh, 19, 20, 21 years old. And they were all having a good time, and they were all kind of cavorting around this thing. And you had the the monument to the Pacific War, and you had it to the European Theater. And how are all these Japanese kids out in front of this thing speaking Japanese in front of the water? So I found the person in charge. He was my age, spoke English, and I asked him who these kids were. He said, oh, they're from a university in Japan, and we're over here. And I said, really? I said, how old are you? He said, 55, 56. And I said, was your father in the war? And he said, yes. And I said, well, this is kind of interesting, because my father probably tried to kill your father. He said, probably. And then I watched these kids, and I had him pose for a picture. And then this gentleman and I shook hands and we went our separate ways. And a rather poignant story. Mm. Now, these are the same people, the same ethnicity of people that had the Code of Bushido. Right. And you're talking about a couple of generations later and they're there uh, and, and probably with no real understanding. You know, if you go to the Japanese textbooks and you try to figure out what happened in World War II, Stephen Ambrose, the great American historian, said, it'll read something like this. In, in uh, August of 1945, for some reason that we can't figure out, America started dropping atomic bombs on Japan. <laughs> and that's the totality of the story. That's it. Well, we're getting a little bit like that in the United States. I mean, the history is being forgotten. So um, so in, in addition to um, you know working in, in the mines, any other Oh, sure. They worked, they worked on the docks. They worked in uh, agriculture. Uh, you, you name the industry, they were there, the so American soldier. Motorcycle, automobile, do you know? I, I don't know about yeah, that, okay. but they were unloading the, the ships and the docks and uh, you know, keeping the furnaces going, working in the mines and all that. It was, uh, it was very hard labor. And so um, tell us about what Harold would do and what his, uh, what his time was like there working well, in the steel factory. What he would do is he would uh, wake up in the morning he would go out, and they would have him do uh, morning calisthenics with these men that were emaciated and improperly fed and 
uh, you know, starving from malnutrition. Then they'd march him two miles to Nippon Steel where he'd run the furnace. Mm. And he'd do that all day. Then they'd give him a little, uh, a little uh, rice ball or whatever food he could actually spot, you know. He said uh, sometimes they would take a bean or something that they would, uh, a sack would break and they'd grab a little food. Then he marched back. I mean, there was kind of monotonous in addition to being brutal. And um, then as the war began to wind down, the men knew it because they would hear fewer and fewer um, discussions among the uh, the, the uh, guards about how great Japan was mm. and what they had done. And then, uh, you know, on a day when the war ended for Harold, the guards just put down their weapons and turned and walked off. Walked off. Mm. And that was the end of it. Was there any warning? Was there any sirens? No, no. Or just walked away? For him, it was just they all walked away. And then all of a sudden the prisoners took over the uh, the camp. And then the Americans came. Does, does Harold, did he describe to you how he felt to find out the war had ended? It was kind of a quiet that came over him kind of hard to explain you know you would think that he would be overjoyed and be in a hurry to get the heck out of there he tells the story of you know uh, going into town and when he got into town he ended up at an air base and an american plane landed he's with one of his buddies an american plane landed and the guy got off took one look at him and said hey look guys he said come get in the plane i'll fly you out of here and harold looked at his companion and he looked at the pilot and he says i'll tell you what Thank you, but we'd rather go out with all of our men. Mm. After all that, he would not leave without everybody in his group. Now that says something about Harold Poole as a man and the man that was with him. And you said he, he weighed how much at the beginning and how much at the end? I think it was about 187, and he got down to 97 pounds. 97 pounds. And that's after having malaria, very, very wet and dry, you just just name the disease. I mean, uh, malaria just about got him. He got lucky because he had some quinine. But, uh, I mean, you know, I just had my gallbladder taken out. And I had a gallbladder attack, and I thought about all the pain. And when I was in the hospital two weeks ago, and I had the best care in the world. I'm at Eisenhower Hospital in one of the nicest facilities in America, probably in the world. And I thought, I wonder how many men on the hell ship or on the Bataan Death March or O'Donnell had a gallbladder attack. I mean, I could hardly stand the pain. I mean, uh, and then have somebody come by and bayonet me? <laughs> or, or or worse yet, cut off the head of my best friend who's standing next to me? Yeah. And then try to make sense of that and then go to sleep at night and then pray to a God that would let that happen? I mean, keeping that together... I'm not sure one could really put their arms around it unless they were there and went through it. I mean, I don't know how you do that. How do you sort all that out? What what guideposts do you have? What what point of reference do you have? I mean, I don't have any. Do you sense that, that Harold always knew he would survive? I think he had an overwhelming faith that he would. Um, I, he's not the kind of man that says, okay, it's time to go. I think he's the kind of man that, you know, puts his faith in his Father in Heaven and he just doesn't... Whatever way it's going to come out, it's going to come out the way it was supposed to. Mm. And I don't think he ever thought for a minute he wasn't going to make it. 
Certainly wasn't going to give up. Oh, absolutely not. It's just not in his. It's not in his constitution. He would never. He's. Let me tell you a story about Old Harold. Um, I mean, he is my hero, and I, I. I don't think that I could ever talk about him without getting emotional, or it's when I really, you know, put my emotions where my thoughts and my words are. During the pendency of the case, I had to get a hold of Harold on several occasions, and once in particular, I called his house. He didn't answer. So I, I called uh, Paul Warner at the U.S. Attorney's Office to say, Paul, where in the heck is Harold? Because it's his father-in-law. So oh, he's over at my house because we're having some trees removed and he always wants to be there to supervise. Well, the guy's in his 80s. So I called Paul's house and his wife, Linda, answers the phone, Harold's daughter. Oh, she said, oh, dad was here, but the bishop called. I said, so? Well, the bishop called because there's a funeral that was going to happen. And someone needed to go to the chapel and put the chairs uh, out. Mm. And I said, well, when's Harold coming back? And she, she said, Dad will come back when the funeral's over and he's put the chairs up. <laughs> That's the kind of man you're talking about. Um, he has no interest uh, in uh, being the center of attention, no interest in doing anything except helping you. You know, one of the big concerns that he had during the pendency of the case, he's worried about me going broke. He said, what happens if we lose? It's a contingency fee. I said, I'll be fine. No, no, I'm really worried about you. That was his main concern. The only way I could talk him off of that is I told him how much money I made a year, (laughs) which I don't share with many people at all, except the IRS and my wife, when she happens to look at the return. (laughs) But, I mean, he was really worried about that. So um, he returns home. What can you tell us about uh, how the war impacted the rest of his life. What was it like to come home? And uh, for better and for worse, was there a short, medium, and long-term impact, positive or negative, as he lived out a very full life um, and then is still living today? Well, um, I think everything that happened to him during the war shaped him into who he is today. I think it was all positive, no matter how horrific it was. When he first came back from the war... Um, he had to go to a hospital and um, then his sister met him and then he went home to Salt Lake City and he just resumed his life. He said he was asked to speak in sacrament meeting. He told a couple of stories and they didn't talk about it for another 30 years. Oh my goodness. Literally did not talk about it. He delivered the mail. And um, uh, once this case got going, there was a wonderful story in the Salt Lake Tribune about Harold Poole, the war hero. One of the people on his mail route called him up and said, I never knew you were a war hero. I didn't know you got the silver star. I didn't know, because he never talked about it. Paul Warner, the son-in-law, um, had been married to Linda for years. And um, for some reason, Harold had to give a talk someplace at a school or something about what happened in the war. And Paul's in the audience. Now, Paul's a... I was in the uh, National Guard. I mean, and he was in the Navy Jack. He understands the military. And so he's sitting there with his wife, and Harold starts to talk, and he mentions that he was awarded the Silver Star. Paul had no idea. He'd been married to the daughter for 25 years. He leans over to Linda, and he said, your dad won the Silver Star? She said, oh, yes. Hmm. Never brought it up. Never said one word about it. We had a Senate hearing um, during the pendency of the case. And uh, I understand a little bit more than Harold, uh, media. And I said, hey, Harold, look, 
when you come into the Senate Judiciary Room on your lapel, before you testify, I want that silver star there. You bring it with you and put it on your lapel. And, you know, um, all the media from Japan and America is going to be there. And there you are, war hero. I guess I was kind of thinking about my good friend as a prop. Hmm. Well, we get to the Senate Judiciary Room. And all the Klieg lights pop on, and Senator Hatch comes out, and Diane Feinstein and the others. And I look at Harold's lapel, and there's no silver star. I said, Harold, where's the silver star? He reaches in his pocket, pulls out the original box that metal came in, opens it up and says, uh, Parky, would you mind helping me put it on? I've never worn it. Where do you get guys like this? So not not a guy who was running around doing road shows and firesides, uh, telling his, uh, doing a Paul Dunn, basically. 20 years, or 20-some-odd years after the war was over, his son Stanley was called on a Mormon mission. Where do you think he went on his mission? Japan. Harold didn't say one word about it. When Paul Warner went to Linda's house to talk to Harold about marrying Linda... Harold said to Paul, uh, where'd you serve your mission? And Paul said, in the Philippines. And all Harold said was, I've spent a little time there. <laughs> and Paul didn't learn for years that he was on the Bataan Death March. Just mm-hmm. didn't bring it up. Mm-hmm. But did it shape him? Of course it did. Did it make him into the kind of man he is? Of course it did. Does he have any animosity towards the Japanese? None. Zero. They're his brothers in Christ and the church and doesn't give it a second thought. He said, you know, the leaders, that that might be a problem, but not the average man. They're just like me. And any right? So um, I think our listeners probably have a a pretty good idea about the nature and the character of Harold Poole. I want to end maybe with a story you can tell us that might encapsulate um, Harold Poole and, and what he what he's meant, um, not only, you know, to his family, but, but uh, what he, what he can mean to us as an example of heroism and of courage and of humility. Uh, tell, tell us uh, maybe the story um, that you've told about when he came back to Salt Lake City. One of my favorite stories um, is Harold's return to the United States. Uh, comes into San Francisco under the Golden Gate Bridge with a big banner, and then his sister... Uh, meets him in the hospital, and um, they're going to send Harold back on a on a bus into Salt Lake City. And the sister wasn't going to stand for that. She said, I want him flown back because he needs to get back as soon as he can to the family. So they made arrangements to put him on a plane, and they flew him into Salt Lake City Airport. And they had the families behind a, a kind of a fence, so they weren't right out on the tarmac. And so if you picture in your mind's eye the following, you've got a mother who hasn't seen her son in five years, who knows he's been in captivity. A father and the sisters are all standing there with others. And as the American soldiers begin to deplane, Mrs. Poole sees Harold descend the steps from the airplane, and then the consummate rule keeper, the member of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, in her Sunday best, jumps over the fence and runs and embraces her son. That's probably one of the most 
poignant stories I know, and then just hugs him. Just like every other mother did across America, from San Francisco to New York, from Seattle to Miami, when the war was over. And I think only a mother would understand that fathers can think about it, but mothers can feel it. And that's Harold Poole, and that's uh, every member of our greatest generation. I think it is. And my big worry is, number one, we forget. And number two, we don't take the steps to become those kind of people ourselves. I just wish I could have told him